Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 20th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Voters to Decide Future of Swisher City Water. March 7th ballot proposal seeks to address growth, improve fire response. By Isabella Zaluska, out of Swisher. Swisher residents will be asked next month if the city should establish a public water system instead of relying on private wells. The conversation comes ahead of anticipated growth, a desire to improve fire response, and concerns about contaminated water. It's a renewed discussion after voters rejected a similar measure two decades ago. The Jefferson-Monroe Fire Department is the only fire department in Johnson County without a public water system. Fire Chief Glenn Himes said, Having public water, which includes fire hydrants, would allow the department to be better prepared to help current and future residents. The population of Swisher, located in northern Johnson County, immediately west of Interstate 380, could nearly triple by 2045. H.R. Green, an engineering firm working with the city, estimates the population could grow to 2,280 by 2045. The city's population was 914 in 2020. If approved, the $19.2 million public water project would be split into two phases. The first phase, estimated at $5.2 million, would address immediate short-term needs, including building two public wells and a water tower. The first phase would be implemented over three to five years. The second phase, estimated to cost just under $14 million, would focus on long-term needs, such as building out the distribution system and adding more wells as needed, and be implemented over the next 10 to 20 years. The project would be funded by user rates, which residents have raised concerns about at public meetings, as well as other uncertainties. If the measure passes, monthly costs, estimated at $46 per residence, would begin next year. The city intends to pursue state and federal funding to help offset user costs. H.R. Green has held two public information meetings for residents about the project. Two additional public information meetings are scheduled for Wednesday and next Sunday before residents head to the polls on March 7th. We need to hear from everyone, Mayor Chris Taylor said, adding the council has been very intentional about not encouraging one outcome over another. We understand that ultimately this is up to residents, and the best the city can do is to make sure that when all is said and done, people feel like they were well-informed going into that vote on March 7th, Taylor said. How did we get here? Most Swisher City residents are served by private wells, but the city does have some public water systems, Josh Scanlon with H.R. Green said during a public information meeting. There are seven public water systems and about 95 private wells. Among the goals is to consolidate all that into one water system, referred to as public water or municipal water. A public water system is year-round, serves more than 25 people, and is governed by the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. It is required to meet federal drinking water standards. A private well doesn't meet the population requirements of a public water system and is regulated by a local board of health, which in this case is the Johnson County Board of Health. The city had a previous special election to develop a municipal water system in February 1999. The measure failed, with 72% of voters voting no and 28% voting yes. A total of 395 residents voted, according to Johnson County Archives. In 2019, there was a renewed interest to explore the possibility of a municipal water system, and a water feasibility committee was formed. 
Cedar Rapids-based H.R. Green was hired to evaluate alternatives for water supply, treatment, storage, and distribution, as well as conduct a water system study. The firm has explored what infrastructure would be needed to move forward with a public water system if approved by voters. A preliminary study considered service from the city of Cedar Rapids, City of North Liberty, and Powashik Water Association. However, water service from these communities was not possible because of capacity limitations, logistics, and costs, Scanlon said. Proposed developments signal population growth. The city's anticipated growth is among the reasons for the renewed conversation. There is a proposed 80-acre development in the northern part of the city and a proposed 30-acre development on the west side. This land has already been annexed by the city to be developed as housing. Together, it's predicted these two developments would add 457 lots and an increase of 1,300 residents. Taylor said the discussion about the two developments lined up with the ongoing discussion about the city's water. The developers will already need to build out a water system for the area. If a public water system were to be approved, this would be an opportunity to expand the infrastructure for the whole city, Scanlon said. Taylor said a public water system would prepare the city to address future growth and other challenges. We have people that come to council meetings. I hear it very often. Someone says, I've lived in Swisher my entire life. My kids have lived in Swisher their entire lives, and if I want them to be able to say that 40 or 50 years from now, that they still have lived in Swisher their entire lives, this is an opportunity right now for us to help prepare the future for them, Taylor said. Fire Protection Addressing Contamination The Jefferson-Monroe Fire Department, which serves Swisher, Shueyville, Jefferson, and Monroe districts, supports establishing a municipal water system. A municipal water system will allow our fire department to connect to a reliable, pressurized water supply to effectively use our responding personnel in controlling the fire and make for a safer city, the department said in a statement. Currently, responding firefighters truck water to and from the scene. Himes, the fire chief, said that when firefighters need to leave to get more water, which typically means going to the closest hydrant in Cedar Rapids, it can take 17 to 20 minutes. The department gets assistance on calls from neighboring fire departments through mutual aid agreements. Municipal water would mean having fire hydrants providing water at the location. As a chief of of a fire department, there are zero negatives to bringing in city water, Himes said. Himes, who was on the water committee, added that not only would public water address fire safety, but also public health. Health benefits with a public water system include increased monitoring and additional water sampling. An emerging contaminant in drinking water in wells has been per- and polyfluoracyl substances, PFAS. They're often called forever chemicals because their molecular structures are made of strong bonds so they don't degrade easily. PFAS has been detected in private wells in the areas between Swisher and the eastern Iowa airport. The city has been notified of three wells testing positive for PFAS within city limits and one outside city limits. A public water system also is designed to maintain operations without interruption of service during severe weather events, such as the derecho in August 2020. Having water available for residents and for the fire department gives the city opportunity to attract new businesses and development projects, Scanlon said. What if the vote fails? If the vote fails, Taylor said the questions and concerns brought up during the water discussion, such such as improving fire response and addressing addressing contaminated water, still will need solutions. 
The city would need to wait at least four years before the issue can be put on the ballot again, Taylor said. What if the vote passes? If the vote passes, the city council will work with a municipal advisor to apply for the loans, establish a rate structure to pay back the loan, as well as work with engineers on the design process, Taylor said. There will be public hearings throughout the process so the community can be involved in the city council's discussions, Taylor said. A possible rate structure could be a monthly rate for residents that would be used for initial capital improvements, as well as an additional flat rate for water service that would turn into metered use once the water system is completed. Estimates from H.R. Green earlier this month indicate residents could pay $46 per month in the first phase and $117 per month during the second phase. Payments would not start until 2024, Taylor said. Scanlon said support from state and federal grants would reduce the monthly customer cost. We'll be looking for any opportunity to take advantage of these grants or other types of funding mechanisms to reduce those costs as much as possible, Scanlon said. Existing private wells would likely be allowed to remain in operation during an implementation period as the water system is built out, according to H.R. Green. Once the municipal water system is complete, private wells could remain for irrigation use or be considered as part of a well buyback program to connect to the municipal water system. Our next headline is Cedar Rapids student arrests up in first half of academic school year. Police note most recent data show number could stabilize. This is by Emily Anderson out of Cedar Rapids. More Cedar Rapids Community School District students have been arrested at school in the first half of this academic year than in the same period last year, even though there are fewer police officers stationed at schools. But school and police officials are optimistic about the impact of changes made last summer to reduce racial disparities and increase chances for diversion from arrest. The changes to the school resource officer contract decreased the number of police officers stationed in the Cedar Rapids District schools from seven to five. The two positions that were removed had been floaters, responding whenever they were needed in the district during the 2021-22 academic year. Before that, the positions were based at McKinley and Roosevelt Middle Schools. The five officers now are stationed at Kennedy, Washington, Jefferson, and Metro High Schools and Polk Alternative School. Whether officers were needed in middle schools was a heated topic of discussion while reviewing the contract last year. The Cedar Rapids City Council supported a revision that would have permanently stationed two officers in McKinley and Wilson Middle Schools, where police had responded to a higher number of incidents in the previous year, but the revision was rejected by the school board. Arrest and Diversions The Gazette requested data from the Cedar Rapids Police Department showing how many arrests were made in the school district during the first half of the 2022-23 school year, from August 2022, compared with how many arrests were made during the same time period the previous year. The data requested included how many arrests were made at each school, the racial and gender breakdown of arrested students, and a breakdown of the charges that students faced. During the first half of the 2022-23 academic year, after the contract changes were made, 24 arrests were made in the Cedar Rapids District by school resource officers, and 14 arrests were made by patrol officers called in during school hours. During the same time period the previous year, there were 15 arrests by resource officers and 11 by patrol officers. None of the resource officers' arrests either year happened at middle schools. However, there were nine arrests made by patrol officers at middle schools during the first half of this school year, 
compared with seven during the first half of the last academic year. Lieutenant Corey McGarvey, who oversees part of the school resource officer program for the police department, said he was concerned by the rise in numbers so far this year. But he can point to a few incidents and students that caused the majority of that increase. Kennedy High School, he said, had one large disturbance this year that resulted in seven students being arrested. At Polk, there are two students who have each been arrested three times. So that's why mid-year were a little higher. I'll tell you, we've had a good January, a good February. These could easily stabilize, and we could be back totally in line with last year, McGarvey said. McGarvey also noted that while the term arrest is used to denote a student being charged in relation to an incident, students are seldom physically arrested and taken out of the school in handcuffs. Most of the time, after resolving or de-escalating an incident, school resource officers will work with a school principal or a facilitator to determine whether criminal or school-based punishments are appropriate. When students are not charged but instead referred to the school for consequences and support, this is referred to as a diversion. These can involve anything from writing a 200-word paper about the negative effects of vaping to attending required counseling. The process for diverting a student rather than charging them includes students and their parents being interviewed by school resource officers to try to determine what is causing the behavior and how to best address it. If the student's crime is one that involves a victim, the decision to divert rather than charge must be approved by that victim, according to McGarvey. In the first half of the 2022-23 school year, there were 28 diversions in the Cedar Rapids district. During the same time period last year, there were 30 diversions, two of them at middle schools. McGarvey noted that more students are being diverted than are being arrested by school resource officers. We like diversions. We like them a lot. And the SROs know that. Diversions are always on the table for an incident, McGarvey said. Nicole Quoker, Deputy Superintendent of the Cedar Rapids Community School District, said that students who are diverted still face consequences, but they're not facing the consequence of potential potentially living with a police record. Racial discrepancies. Black students made up about 66% of the arrests and 46% of the diversions during the first half of academic year 2022-23, even though black students make up only about 20% of the total school district population. The large disruption at Kennedy High that resulted in seven arrests could have contributed to this racial difference as all seven students arrested were black, according to McGarvey. In the first half of academic year 2021-22, black students made up about 54% of arrests and 46% of the diversions. Quaker said that although the number of students being charged isn't where she wants it to be, it is much better than years ago. I don't want disproportionate arrest numbers. I think a lot of it is we all have biases and some training needs to happen, Quaker said. I don't want our academic data to have gaps and differences as well. It takes time. There's still opportunity for us to partner with the police department, work together, learn together, and continue to focus on closing those gaps. School resource officers have various trainings related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, both through the police department and through the school district, McGarvey said. The SROs are getting actually more training than the normal officers because they are going to training with the school district, and I'm sending them to additional training for SROs, And we're all trained by NASRO, the National Association of School Resource Officers, McGarvey said. According to Quaker, school resource officers all have taken the intercultural development inventory 
an online survey to assess intercultural competence, as well as completed full-day trainings in restorative practices and trauma-informed care. They've also undergone a two-day training in de-escalation and nonviolent crisis prevention and intervention training, which focuses on prevention and equips people to safely diffuse anxious, hostile, or violent behavior. Joint Goals The school district and police department have set joint goals to reduce arrests and charges filed against all students by 50% or more and bring a 50% or greater reduction in the disproportionate number of arrests of black students, according to Koiker. She said the district and police are having conversations about how to be more specific in their goals, such as by X date, only X number of students will be charged with a crime. The revised goal is expected to be presented to the school board this spring when the board will be voting again on renewing the school resource officer's contract. The current one ends June 30th. Each month, school officials meet with the Cedar Rapids Police Department to compare data of students charged or diverted. The police department shares monthly reports with the district that outline the arrests, diversions, and any other police reports that occurred that month at the district. The reports include information about who made the call for service and the race and gender of the suspect and victim, if there is one, in each incident. Police share numbers from only middle and high schools, a policy which the district agreed to, because elementary schools usually have very few, if any, arrests, McGarvey said. The data is analyzed to see what can be put in place to decrease the number of students being charged. We live in two different worlds, education and law enforcement. How do those work together to best serve our kids, Quaker said. The differences in data sometimes depends on who made the request for service from an officer. McGarvey said the police department recently started tracking who makes the calls for service because of public accusations that school resource officers were actively looking to arrest students. He said that of the 24 arrests made by the resource officers so far this school year, only one was initiated by the officer. The others were all situations where someone else, a student, parent, or staff member, called for help. There's been this preconceived notion by people in the public that the SROs are the enforcers of the school. They're looking to arrest kids. That's so not true, McGarvey said. We work really hard with the school district, and I mean the SROs and the principals, or the SROs and a facilitator. They work really hard together to do do joint decision-making. Our next headline is U.S. farm income forecasts to fall after two robust years. USDA says lower commodity prices and higher expenses are to blame. By Adam Goldstein out of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. After two strong years of growth, U.S. farm income is forecast to drop substantially in 2023 as commodity prices fall and expenses rise, the U.S. Department of Agriculture Economic Research Service reported this month. But with food prices projected to rise into 2023, the nation's producers will not be reaping the financial benefits. The economic team said inflation-adjusted net cash profits are expected to decline from a record high $195.3 billion last year to $150.3 billion in calendar year 2023, a drop of 22.9%. Projected net farm income will fall to $136.9 billion, according to the USDA researchers, 18.2% below the calendar year 2022 levels when adjusted for inflation. Last year marked the best year on record for inflation-adjusted net farm income since 1973. The division added that declines in farm income are expected to affect nearly all specialty operations and regions. 
The farm sector income and wealth forecast was the first of 2023. USDA senior economist Carrie Litkowski spoke on a webinar about what the details of the forecast hold for farmers and legislators. The goal of forecasting is not to predict the future, but to tell you what you need to know to take meaningful action in the present, Litkowski said. She said the USDA data on farm income and wealth can contribute to discussions in Congress this year on the upcoming farm bill. The U.S. farm sector makes up roughly 2 million farms, which operate close to 900 million acres. Broader farm income. Likowski said the drop in net farm cash income and net farm income levels can be largely attributed to lower commodity prices. She noted the forecast of a 4% reduction in commodity cash receipts from calendar years 2022 to 2023, equal to $23.6 billion. Litkowski added that total crop cash receipts are expected to decline close to 6% from 2022, with corn and soy most affected. Still, Litkowski said cash receipts for both crops will remain at relatively high levels. The Economist also cited the impacts of a $5.4 billion reduction in direct government payments to farmers in 2023 to $10.8 billion. This number reflects a predicted 34.4% drop in federal spending for farms, which Litkowski attributed to declining payouts for USDA pandemic aid and disaster assistance programs. Litkowski also attributed net farm income declines to growing production costs forecast to increase by an inflation-adjusted $18.3 billion from 2022. Litkowski said these cost increases are driven predominantly by growth in interest rates, livestock, and poultry expenses and labor expenses. The economists also cited growing operator dwelling expenses as affecting production costs for farmers, including factors such as property taxes. Farm businesses. Litkowski noted that all farm businesses in the report, regardless of location or crop specialty, are forecast to see declines in cash receipts and government payments along with increasing costs. Researchers noted that average net cash farm income for farm businesses is expected to fall 17.7% in nominal terms to $92,400. A nominal dollar measure is an amount of money that has not had its value adjusted for inflation. The economists added that all commodity specializations of farm businesses are forecast to receive lower average cash net income. Total animal cash receipts are forecast to decline 8% from calendar years 2022 to 2023. The largest dollar decline for commodities is milk, which is forecast to see a $10 billion decrease in cash receipts. Milk receipts will fall in 2023 because of a lower milk price, Litkowski said. Dairy and hog farmers are expected to see the largest relative decline in animal cash receipts from calendar years 2022 to 2023. Cash receipts for eggs also are expected to decline 26% in 2023 compared with calendar year 2022. Litkowski noted that avian flu caused the price of eggs to skyrocket over the past three years and that the sector will start to recover from the shocks of these outbreaks in 2023. Litkowski said farmers growing cotton and specialty crops also are expected to see large nominal dollar declines. Geographically, farm businesses in the Fruitful Rim and Northern Crescent regions are among those expected to see the largest net farm income declines. The Fruitful Rim includes western Oregon, western Washington, south-central Idaho, western California, most of Arizona, the southern rim of Texas, 
Florida, southern Alabama, and southern Georgia. The northern crescent includes the upper Midwest and the northeast, including Wisconsin, eastern Minnesota, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Farm household income. The well-being of farm operator households is determined by a combination of on-farm and off-farm activity. Most income from many of these households comes from off the farm, according to the researchers. The government service found that median total farm household income is forecast to decrease 0.4% in 2023 from 2022 to $96,715 when adjusted for inflation. Yet median net farm income earned by farm households is expected to drop another $442, producing a median average of $1,123 in adjusted net farm household income losses in 2023. Lakowski said this number should not cause panic. At the median farm income, at the median farm income is negative, Lakowski explained. But recall that half of all farms are what we call residential farms, where the primary occupation of the operator is not farming. So this results in a low and usually negative farm income at the median. Likowski added that median off-farm income in 2023 is projected to grow to $91,080, a 0.4% increase from 2022 when adjusted for inflation. Okay, we're going to turn to the opinion section. And we have guest column Norman Sherman, who wrote an article entitled Helping Feed Thy Neighbor. There are 40 million people in our country living in poverty. Those who study mealtime in America concluded one in seven working families do not have sufficient money to meet household needs. Those needs start with food. In addition to working families, there are those who cannot work. About a quarter of those needing food help are the most vulnerable, those under 18 or over 65. Some of them live under bridges, some hidden away in in inadequate housing. They are almost always underfed. Some people take the biblical injunction to feed the hungry seriously. Free lunch in Iowa City has been at it for 40 years. Its guiding principle is simple and clear. An open door, a full plate, no questions asked. Currently, free lunch offers a really good meal to about 125 people, sometimes a few more, six days a week. They do it on donations. Make one. It feels good. And with volunteers. Every couple of months, I volunteer for a few hours at free lunch. My special and newly learned skill is slicing radishes, carrots, and cauliflower. Sometimes I get to wash lettuce and tear it into bite-sized pieces. Other volunteers cook, bake, serve, and clean. A good share of the vegetables come free from local grocery chains just before first signs of wilt, and still are tasty and nutritious. Produce from farmers' markets also find its way to the tables. On a recent day, the menu included roasted chicken fresh out of the oven, beans, salad, bread, among other things, including a simple dessert. The volunteers usually belong to some group, but others are just caring individuals happy to help others eat. My group of about a dozen comes as members of the Johnson County Democratic Party but others come through their church or some social association. Free lunch exists because hungry people do as well. Most of us just don't know anyone with an empty larder. Almost 10% of our U.S. population lives in poverty, and most are working poor. It's tough to pay for the rent, transportation to work, a new pair of old jeans <clears throat> Excuse me, for a growing teenager. You don't ever buy a Dairy Queen. If the recipients are working, why are they so poor? 
A minimum wage job in Iowa pays $7.25 an hour, about $1,300 a month. Rent for a plain to decrepit two-bedroom apartment may rent for $600 a month, possibly more. You can't walk to work ordinarily, and gas for an old car costs over $3 a gallon. Food on any day is sparse. By the end of the month, there may be so little that free lunch is a banquet made in heaven. You can see those who are overweight, but hunger is invisible. Some who need a meal exist, but do not thrive in every country, excuse me, in every county. In the city, they may mow your lawn or wash your new car. Simply, there are thousands of our fellow Iowans who are underfed and often hungry. It is obviously not an easy problem to solve. No quick fix from the legislature will do it. Free lunch is a model, not a solution. The hungry will be with us, but a small, steady local effort like free lunch gives hope as well as calories to people in need. Again, that was by Norman Sherman of Coralville, who has worked extensively in politics, including as Vice President Hubert Humphrey's press secretary. We'll turn to the community letters. Delivery inconsistencies disappoint new subscriber. I recently, three weeks ago, subscribed to the Gazette for home delivery. In this short amount of time, the delivery person has failed to deliver my paper to me four times, twice just this week. Each time I call to report this, the customer service person informs me that the delivery supervisor will be contacted. It appears that contacting the supervisor is doing no good. Is this the type of service I can expect from the Gazette? Someone somewhere in your organization needs to rectify the situation. The person who does the actual delivery needs to be told to either get their head in the game or to seek employment elsewhere. This many delivery failures is completely unacceptable. That was from Stan Pitama from Marion. History can repeat itself. I enjoy reading history and now reading Hitler, excuse me, and now reading Hitler, A Study in Tyranny by Alan Bullock, I read an interesting passage that stuck in my mind. Located on page 70, I will quote part of it. When you lie, tell big lies. That in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily, and thus in the primitive simplicity of their minds they are more readily fall victims to the big lie, more the small lie. The grossly impudent lie always leaves traces behind it, even after it has been nailed down. There is more on this page, but this is just to highlight what caused me to pause and reflect. Ray Johnston from Cedar Rapids. Cartoon selection may not be about may not be about bias. Concerning cartoon selection reveals bias in the February 5th community letters, did it occur to the reader to not look at Republican or Democrat, but to look at the truth of what the cartoon is showing? I hate to say it, but the Republicans in Congress and leaders across the states are doing and saying far more ludicrous things than are the Democrats. The question should be, did the cartoon distort the facts? If they haven't, you may have the reason more Republicans voted blue in the last election. And that was from Patricia Lahr, Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Donna May Height, Cedar Rapids, she's 94, passed away on Friday, February 17th at West Ridge Care Center. A funeral service will take place at 1030 
Thursday, February 23rd at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids with a visitation one hour prior. Burial will be held at Anderson Cemetery in Swisher. Following the funeral service, Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids is assisting the family. Donna was born April 9, 1928, to Howard and Ann Morganson Eggleston. She graduated from Cedar Falls High School, class of 1948. Donna worked at Cedar Falls Bank and Trust before moving to Cedar Rapids. She worked at Merchants National Bank as an auditor, Aggregates Sand and Gravel Plant, and Walmart before retiring. Donna loved working with her flowers at home and taking long rides. She was a charter member of Gloria Day Lutheran Church, where she was also a member of the Stephen Ministries and Naomi Circle. Donna is survived by special friend Lee Kalos, her sister Patricia Lindsay of Waterloo, son Ron, spouse Diana, daughter Kayleen, son Dwayne, spouse Kim, son Michael, spouse Valeria, and grandchildren Kimberly, Rod, Kelly, Shane, Eliza, Timothy, Krista, Robin, and Andrea, 18 great-grandchildren, five nieces and nephews, and her beloved puppy Bella. She was preceded in death by her parents Howard and Anne, her brother-in-law Donald, nephew Marshall, and her first beloved puppy Izzy. Memorials may be directed to Gloria Day Lutheran Church, 153 Cherry Hill Road, Northwest, Cedar Rapids. The family would like to thank the staff at West Ridge Care Center for their wonderful care of Donna. Naomi Marie Brewster, 81, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully to meet her Savior after a long illness on Thursday, February 16th at Mercy Medical Center with family at her side. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 24th at Cedar Memorial Chapel State Room. A memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 25th at Cedar Valley Bible Church, 3636 Cottage Grove Avenue, Southeast, followed by a refreshment reception. Naomi was born January 1, 1942, in Waterloo, the oldest daughter of three, to Elmer and Hazel Hawken. She married her high school sweetheart, Bill Brewster, also of Waterloo, on May 27, 1961. They attended Iowa State University in Ames, where he pursued engineering while she followed her passion for English literature. The couple relocated to Cedar Rapids in 1966 when Bill was hired by Collins Radio. Naomi continued her education, graduating from Coe College in 1966 with a Bachelor of Arts degree, earning Phi Kappa, Phi Beta Kappa, and Magna Cum Laude academic honors. She continued graduate studies at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, attaining two Master of Arts degrees, English in 1976 and Library Science in 1981. While finishing her education, Naomi became an English teacher and taught for 32 years at Washington High School, Harding Junior High, and Kennedy High School. At Kennedy, she also served as a librarian for several years. Following her retirement in 2000, she taught part-time with English as a Second Language students at Kirkwood Community College. Throughout her teaching career, she was known by her students to hold high standards, challenging them to achieve their full potential. Her sharp mind and impeccable memory allowed her to recall student names and classroom details decades later. Frequently, former students would thank her for her teaching abilities and encouraging personality. Additionally, as a longtime member of Cedar Valley Bible Church, she was involved in many church ministries such as Awana and the Lunch Bunch Fellowship Group, where she continued mentoring and sharing her faith in Christ. Along with being a consummate academic, Naomi had a lifelong passion for music. 
An accomplished pianist herself, she also taught piano while attending college. Her musical talents extended to the organ, an ability she demonstrated regularly as a church organist for many years. Later in life, Naomi introduced her two grandchildren to the piano, which became her legacy gift to them, greatly influencing their own love of music. Additionally, Naomi loved classical music. Her ability to understand and explain the intricacies of the great classics was truly amazing. Travel was an important aspect of family life for Naomi. She planned annual family trips, leaving few states untraversed. Being a historian at heart, each trip became a learning adventure about the significance of each location. Love of travel also took Bill and Naomi on a European tour in 1986. Additionally, her family enjoyed camping together at several state parks and an annual church family camp. Especially after retirement, Naomi enjoyed sewing and quilting hobbies, which she shared with her husband Bill. They were active with the East Iowa Heirloom Quilters and the Freedom Stitchers of Iowa charity organizations that make quilts for the needy and quilts of valor to honor service veterans. In addition, Naomi's interest included rooting for the Iowa Hawkeye football team and following politics. She was a loving wife, mother, grandmother, teacher, and friend who is greatly missed. Naomi was preceded in death by her parents. Survivors include her husband, Bill Brewster, her son, Neil Brewster, her grandchildren, Samuel and Victoria Brewster, all of Cedar Rapids, and her sisters, Esther Hamilton, spouse John of Cedar Rapids, and Ellie Billington, spouse Clyde of Destin, Florida. Memorials may be given in Naomi's name to Cedar Valley Christian School. Next, we have Stephen Frederick Jensicki, 75, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on February 17th at St. Luke's Hospital after complications from Lewy body dementia and prostate cancer. Steve was born January 22, 1948, in Cedar Rapids to Robert and Jesslyn Jensicki. He grew up in the big white house on F Avenue on an acreage. Steve helped with the garden and orchard and had many wonderful pets there, including the family horses, which he loved riding. He graduated from Jefferson High School in 1966, where he was a proud member of the football and golf teams. He married Marianne Jenkins on June 13, 1970. Steve then attended officer training at Fort Benning, Georgia. When he returned to Cedar Rapids, he was attached to the local Army Reserve Unit as captain. Steve received a B.A. in Business Administration from the University of Iowa and a B.S. in Computer Science from Coe College and spent the bulk of his career at Rockwell Collins, where he started the very first HP computer room. Steve and his family purchased Allen's Orchard in 2010, where he enjoyed tending the apples and welcoming the many families that visited with his ready smile. Steve loved spending time with his family, golfing, woodworking, cooking, Sherlock Holmes stories, cheering on the Iowa Hawkeyes, and telling people about apples. Steve is survived by his wife of 52 years, Mary Ann Jensicki. Children, Anne Ort, spouse Shane, and Chris Jensicki, spouse Nicole. Grandchildren, Riley and Elias. Siblings, Robin Updegraff, spouse Mike, and Holly Luvar, spouse Al. Nephews, Ryan Luvar, spouse Kara. Nicholas Luvar, and Jonathan Jenkins, spouse Juliana, and the family dog, Seamus. He was preceded in death by his parents, Robert and Jesslyn Jensicki. A celebration of life event will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, March 26, at Allen's Orchard in Marion. In lieu of flowers, please direct memorial contributions to the family at Allen's Orchard to be used for planting of trees as a memorial to Stephen and for assisting with the scouts. David Lee Johnson, 80, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully with family by his side on Friday, February 17th. 
A visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. The funeral service will take place at 11 a.m. Friday, February 21st at Radiant Church, 3233 Blairs Ferry Road, Northeast, Cedar Rapids, with a visitation one hour prior. Burial will follow at Linwood Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. David was born January 31, 1943, in Cuba, Illinois, the son of Clarence and Mary Yoakum Johnson. He graduated from Cuba High School, class of 1961. David went on to attend North Central Bible College in Minneapolis, where he majored in Bible and pastoral studies. David's mother was one of the first graduates and encouraged him to attend. He met Mary Louise Dather at North Central Bible College, and they were united in marriage on May 19, 1973, at Storden Baptist Church in Storden, Minnesota. David worked for seven years at Douglas, excuse me, at Douglas Stemmick Company in Minneapolis, and then moved to Tallahassee, Florida, in 1973, where he worked for the telephone company. In 1977, David moved to Cedar Rapids and began working for National Oats Ralston Foods for 29 years until his retirement in 2008. He was a member of the Radiant Church for 45 years and was very involved with the churches that Mary and David were members of. David served in nursing home ministries in Florida and Minneapolis and also was a deacon and worked church security. David coached the boys' Little League baseball teams. He loved the Minnesota Vikings and Illinois Fighting Illini. David enjoyed golfing, watching old movies and classic westerns, and traveling. Above all else, he adored his grandchildren. They were his greatest joy. Survivors include his wife, Mary Johnson of Cedar Rapids, three children, Rishana, spouse Darren, Sanford of Williston, North Dakota, Eric Johnson of Atkins, and Tori Johnson of Cedar Rapids, four grandchildren, Joshua, spouse Claudia Sanford, Elissa Sanford, Bryn Sanford, and Blake Johnson, one great-grandchild on the way, and twin brother Daniel, spouse Helen Johnson of Canton, Illinois. He was preceded in death by his parents. Gordon Dean Williams, 77, of Iowa City, passed away February 17th. A service of remembrance will be held at 2 p.m. Friday, February 24th at Lensing's Oak Hill, 210 Holiday Road, Coralville, where his family will greet friends an hour before from 1 to 2 p.m. Private family burial will be held at Oakland Cemetery. Donald Ray Jaden of Iowa City passed away on February 16th with his loving wife by his side. Memorial services will be held at 1 p.m. Friday, February 24th at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service, Iowa City. A reception will follow the memorial service. Burial will be later at Wall Lake Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Lakeview United Methodist Church, 501 2nd Street, Lakeview, Iowa. Don was born on May 7, 1934, to Harold and Florence Westering Jaden in Lake City, Iowa. He graduated from Lakeview High School and attended the University of South Dakota. He served in the U.S. Army as postmaster in Anchorage, Alaska. After service, he joined his father in business at Jaden Oil Company in Lakeview. Upon his father's passing, he owned and operated Jaden Oil for 36 years until he retired to Iowa City in 1994. Don married Donna Thayer in June of 1956 at Grace Methodist Church in Waterloo. Together they had four children, Dr. Rich Jaden, Scott, spouse Kathy Jaden of Carroll, Joanne, spouse Charles Lamech of Cedar Rapids, and Amy, spouse Curtis, 
Gurowski of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Donna is survived by his wife of 66 years, Donna, and their three children, sisters Shirley Ashbaugh, Janet Zumach, and Judy Stair, spouse Robert, Donna's brothers, Don, spouse Sue Thayer, Claire Thayer, and sisters-in-law, Roma and Carol Smith. Eleven grandchildren, Alicia Adams, spouse Sean, Matthew Jaden, Kevin Jaden, Melissa, spouse Mark Allen, Michael Ken, Sarah Adams, spouse Ryan, Aaron Lamach, spouse Jamie, Benjamin Lamach, spouse Elena, Kyle Lamach, spouse Kaylee, Samuel Gutowski, spouse Kayla, and Ellen Gutowski, spouse Joseph Kelly, along with 16 great-grandchildren and numerous nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Harold and Florence, stepfather Lloyd, spouse Jack Smith, his son Rick. Don will be remembered for his passion for Iowa college sports, great tailgates, traveling the world, golfing, bowling in his early years, and always his love of his wife and family. He will be greatly missed, but we will all cherish the wonderful memories of him, really, actually. William Bill Denzel Tompkins passed away peacefully on February 16th with his loving wife by his side at Mercy Hospital in Iowa City after a long illness. A funeral service will be held at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, February 21st at Sharon Center United Methodist Church in rural Kelowna. He will be laid to rest at Sharon Center United Methodist Church Cemetery. Lunch will be served in Fellowship Hall following the service. Visitation for family and friends will be from 1 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 20th at Beatty and Petersheim Funeral Home in Kelowna. Bill was born October 3, 1957 to Richard, Dick, and Helen Fran Shimo Tompkins in West Des Moines. He was united in marriage to Kathy Sue Stutzman on July 1, 2006 at Sharon Center United Methodist Church in Kelowna. He graduated from West Des Moines Valley High School in 1976 and furthered his education at Waldorf, at Waldorf College in Forest City. He made Iowa City his permanent home in 1979 when he began his studies at the University of Iowa, graduating with a bachelor's in 1982. He worked at IAC Group, formerly Shelley Globe, UTA, and Lyricor, for 35 years. He was a member of Sharon Center United Methodist Church. When his three older brothers were asked what they'd like to name their baby brother, they all said, Bill. Bill was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 8. As a child and throughout his early adulthood, Bill enjoyed spending time with his family at Woman Lake in Minnesota. Bill will be missed by all whom he touched, especially his heart of gold, kind soul, and infectious booming laughter. He enjoyed the simple things in life, often delighting in a lawn well-mowed, a clean car, an Iowa Hawkeyes game, sitting at the dinner table surrounded by family and friends, or burning sticks on a clear night on the farm. Bill was referred to as the baby whisperer and was often seen holding any baby within his reach. He took pride in sitting upon his John Deere tractor, using it for various projects around the yard. He enjoyed scenic motorcycle rides with his wife and friends, exploring small towns in eastern Iowa. But most of all, he found great joy in watching and enthusiastically cheering on his daughters and grandchildren in their activities. Bill was always ready for the next adventure and kept a pair of lawn chairs in the trunk of his car for the next sporting event or outdoor concert. Bill underwent several procedures due to sports and health-related causes, but notably he had a heart valve replacement in 2006 and received a kidney and pancreas transplant in 2015. 
Those left to forever remember and honor Bill's memory include his wife, Kathy Stutzman, his daughters, Grace, spouse Matthew Parlette of Phoenix, Arizona, Emily, spouse Matthew Botel of West Liberty, Audrey, spouse Brendan McCassie of Seattle, Washington, Ann Stork, spouse Peter McCarthy of Iowa City, Jane Berglund, spouse Chad Barker of Tacoma, Washington, and Sarah, spouse Seth Wittes of Phoenix, Arizona. Bill was proud of his grandchildren, Cameron and Casey Parlett, Maddox and Lincoln McCassie, Oliver Stork, Jack Barker, and Rosemary Wittes. He is also survived by his brothers, Richard, spouse Cynthia Tompkins of Mason City, Ronald, spouse Colleen Tompkins of Phoenix, Arizona, and Donald, spouse Jill Tompkins of Iowa City. Ten nephews, two nieces, and former wives, Brenda Wheat, married August 6, 1977, and Patricia Tompkins, married August 5, 1990. Bill was preceded in death by his parents, Fran and Dick Tompkins, stepson, Adam Jones, niece, Sarah Jane Tompkins, nephew, Richard Norton Tompkins III, and great-great-nephew, Rhett J. Dreyer. Bill's family extends their gratitude to his care teams at University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics and Mercy Hospital and to their extended family and friends for their loving support and care for Bill throughout his illness. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be directed to Sharon Center United Methodist Church. Carol Marie Hansen, 67, of Cedar Rapids, died February excuse me, Friday, February 17th, after a short battle with cancer. She was at home with family by her side. Carol was known to some as Carol with a K, KT, Carol Ann, Carol on Sunday, Mommy Dearest, Dirtbag, and to all, Bad Grandma. A memorial service will take place from 2 to 2.30 p.m., with a visitation following until 4 p.m. Sunday, March 5th, at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids. Survivors include her daughter, Becky, spouse Dustin Hansen of Mount Vernon, son Eric Hansen of Tipton, of Tipton, sister Karen, spouse Steve Wedipole of St. Charles, Missouri, grandkids Taryn, Michaela, Jackson, Jesse, Lily, Quinn, Zoe, and Charlay, and two nieces. She was preceded in death by her parents, Albert and Betty Trans, Transnell, and husband Donald Hansen. Carol was born January 8, 1956, in Davenport, Iowa. Her best school memories were made in Crystal Lake, Illinois. When KT first moved to Iowa, she worked at the Montrose Hotel, then bartended for 28 years, worked at the cigarette outlet for seven years, and retired in 2021 from a man whirlpool. She loved spending time with her family and friends. Her grandkids learned from her how to play skip bow and marbles. KT liked to party, shoot pool, and fish. She shot pool for many years for Bob's Hideaway and Stop Off. She's made many friends through the years, had a great sense of humor, beautiful smile, and liked to joke a lot. She has gone to join her family members that have passed on and her good friends, Patty, Hanny, Barb, Teresa, and many more. Mom, you will be missed beyond measure. Love you, the family. Gerald Faye Henderson, 89, Marion, passed away on Sunday, February 12th at his home in Marion. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.45, Saturday, February 25th, at First Presbyterian Church, located at 802 12th Street in Marion. Funeral services will begin at 11 a.m. at the church with Pastor Jim Langley officiating. Burial will immediately follow at Oak Shade Cemetery in Marion. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. 
Gerald was born on June 24, 1933, on a farm in Central City, the son of Lloyd Chandler and Winnie Alice Burnside Henderson. He attended the Little Red School, a one-room schoolhouse in Delaware County, until completing his education at Coggan High School. Gerald served honorably in the U.S. Army during the Korean conflict. On December 22, 1957, Gerald was united in marriage to Judith Judy K. Hamlin at the First Congregation at the First Congregational Church in Cedar Rapids. He worked for the Department of Transportation for nearly 40 years, painting lines in 14 counties during the summer and plowing snow in the winter. Gerald loved watching NASCAR and had a passion for anything with four wheels. He loved washing and waxing all his cars, especially his third son, his 1996 Impala SS, which was his pride and joy. Gerald enjoyed his many trips with his wife Judy and loved spending time with family and friends. He was a member of First Presbyterian Church, where he served as an usher. Gerald will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved him. Gerald is survived and lovingly remembered by his wife of 65 years, Judy, two sons, Scott, spouse Kathy Henderson of Glenview, Illinois, and Eric, spouse Kathy Henderson of Witterset. Seven grandchildren, Brian Henderson and Michael Henderson, both of Chicago, Illinois, Katie, spouse John Brungard of Lanoka Harbor, New Jersey, Kristen Henderson, spells Kellen Rickles of Boone, Aaron Henderson of Vinton, Amanda, spells Tony Luna of Des Moines, and Reggie, spells Nicole Thomas of Norwalk. Four great-grandchildren, one great-great-granddaughter, brother Merle Henderson of Coggan, two sisters, Garnett Henderson and Marilyn Hedgda, both of Cedar Rapids. One sister-in-law, Betty Jo, spells Earl Smith, of Truckee, California, one brother-in-law, Bob Dighton of Missouri, and several nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, two brothers, Wally and Keith Henderson, and four sisters-in-law, Verla Henderson, Donna Henderson, Darlene Baumgartner, and Mabel Ann Dighton. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to a favorite charity of the donor's choice. Deanna Lynn Cromer, 70, of Blairstown, passed away peacefully in her sleep on February 17th in her home. Deanna was born on November 4th, 1952, to Dale and Arlene Griffith Lubin in Cedar Rapids. Deanna graduated from Prairie High School in 1970. In July 1970, Deanna and her high school sweetheart, Ted Anderson, were united in marriage and together had two daughters, Tracy and Debbie. During their marriage, Deanna was a homemaker and also did daycare for years. After losing her husband, Ted, to cancer in 1986, she met Michael Cromer, and they were united in marriage on January 21, 1992. Together, they had a beautiful home in Blairstown, where she loved sitting outside with the sun touching her face, watching nature, and looking at the big oak tree out back. In 2010, Deanna retired from Midwest Metals Products after about 24 years of employment. She spent her time doing the things she loved, taking trips to Aruba with her husband, Mike, gardening and reading. She also enjoyed cooking for family and friends and cherished any get-togethers they shared. Deanna was predeceased by first husband Ted, her parents, her in-laws, her brother Gary Griffith, and a stepson, Marshall Cromer. She is survived by her ever-so-loving husband, Mike, her daughter, Debbie Anderson, spells Jerry DeVore, and granddaughters, Alex DeVore, Terry DeVore, and Isabel of Marion, and daughter, Tracy Craig, spouse Sailor, and grandchildren Kalia and Ripley, currently of Singapore. 
Deanna's blended family also included stepdaughters Gina Mulby, spouse Mike, and grandson Hudson of Cedar Rapids, Reagan Johnson with grandchildren Coda and Carly of Marion, and Michelle Conger, spouse Craig of Waterloo. Deanna is also survived by her brothers Jack Griffith, spouse Barb of Cedar Rapids, and Scott Griffith of Cedar Rapids, sister-in-law Marcia Colton of Woodhull, Illinois, and many nieces and nephews and great-nieces and great-nephews. Family services are private. A visitation for the public will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, February 25th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. In lieu of flowers, Deanna requests donations be made to Camp Courageous of Iowa. A celebration of life at JW's to be determined. More information will come. Frank Edward Bartling, 84, died February I'm sorry. Let's let me start that again. Frank Edward Bartling of Coralville, 84, died Friday, February 17th at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. No services are planned. Memorials may be directed to Karen Bartling in, co- in care of PO Box 167, Iowa City. Frank is survived by his wife Karen, daughter Coral, spouse Thomas Delancey of Lisbon, grandchildren Kimberly and Benjamin Delancey and Lexi Bartling, all of Cedar Rapids, and his sister Barb, spouse Kent Cruz of Cedar Falls. Frank was preceded in death by his parents and his son, Joe Bartling. John Conrad Nevsker of Earlville, 83, passed away on Saturday, February 18th at his home. A vigil service will be held at 3 p.m. Friday, February 24th at Clifton Murdoch Funeral Home in Earlville, where visitation will follow until 8 p.m., An additional visitation will take place from 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, February 25th at the funeral home. Mass of Christian burial will follow at 10.30 a.m. at St. Joseph Catholic Church with the Rev. Gabriel Mensa officiating. Burial will take place at St. Joseph Catholic Cemetery, Earlville, with military honors. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.